My name is Matthew Sweet, and I'm very pleased to be moderating. <laughs> but, but we are a group of people who I think were probably all formed in some way by the writing of the man who we're here to celebrate this afternoon. So, um, so let me welcome some of the other people onto the stage who are going to be sharing the love for Terence Sticks, exploring his writing and his style and how it brought all of us here um, into this room today. So will you welcome, please, let's have Emma Reeves on stage first. Although she's the mother, she's the Emma Reeves, the queen of CBBC, the woman behind Pinty Feather and the worst witch and torture novels as well. Will you welcome, please, the superintendent of the Shadow Police, Paul Connell. And will you welcome special effects genius and uh, Doctor Who novelist, Mike Tucker. You wouldn't believe it, but parts in are actually made out of airfix kits. And last and very much not least, although I think you've all seen her already, haven't you? But the woman whose, uh, whose character's career was shaped by Terence Dix, Miss Katie Manning. So, Terence Sticks, I think in a way, a product of a, of a really kind of democratic, meritocratic moment in British history. Publican's son goes to Cambridge, taught by F.R. Leavis, the greatest literary critic of his age, goes to the BBC, shapes culture uh, in a really important way, shapes those stories that come into our homes via the, the TV and the public life. It's quite a legacy, isn't it? Yes, and uh, I think, you know, um, it, it's something we could sort of learn from now because we're still sort of trying hard to make TV um, more accessible, to more, more socially mobile, and, and I think um, I think there was a wonderful time in the, in the 60s and 70s where people were getting the chance to go to university without incurring huge debt, and you get wonderful people like Torrance Dix um, coming up through that route. And Katie Manning, you must tell us about how you encountered him and how he came into your life. <laughs> that day. Um, just very briefly, I'll just say that um, when I was doing another television series for the other channel, and they had shortlisted Joe Grant to three actresses, but according to Terence, and, and he has a lot of stories, and I've heard many of them, so I can say most of them. Uh, I can say it's because it's true from Terence. Um, but they didn't feel they found exactly what they wanted. And John also had a very particular idea of what he wanted in his head. So they said, let's wait and see this other little person before we go ahead. And this other little person was me. And I arrived at the BBC, got frightfully lost. Uh, so that was a good start. And then um, I arrived, I also had the most dreadful cough, I sounded like I'd just come out of Bassy Dogs home, I had like a kennel cough. And uh, when they asked me if I could read from the script, I couldn't because I didn't have my big thick glasses with me. And reading with my nose was not an option. So they just asked me if I would go and do a little improvisation, which was of course much more up my street, which I did. And uh, the very next day I got the call to say, We'd like you to play Joe Grant because apparently after I left, they said that's the one, <laughs> you know, the one that got lost, 
was already obviously had a series of dreadful problems that I was going to go to plan. Um, but they were such wonderful leaders. We had a, it was the family was driven from Terence and from Barrelettes, and it was a bit like Malcolm and Mark Wise. You never saw one without the other. If you did, you knew there was a problem, like a, when, when Barry Letts chopped off his toenail or his toe. Yes, he did, with, with um, the lawnmower. Um, so we didn't see him for a couple of days, but he soon came limping back in, minus a toe. Uh, but they were extraordinary because they listened. They cared so deeply about Doctor Who that Terence would never let anything go by. We should never put out scientific information that is not fully corrected in Tina because we will get lots of letters saying no. Um, and they were very keen to obviously uh, bring in an, an older group of people. So they were trying to lift this show from just a very young audience and lift it up, which was beginning to happen. But the great thing about working for them, and I'd say, I'll do it as quickly as I can. Um, the great thing about working for them was they listened to everything. If there was a problem with dialogue, if we found that there was an escape, John would say, no, that's not logical. She can't dig her way out with a spoon. <laughs> I want a bit. Um, I'll certainly have a go. Um, or, you know, with Roger, we would, he would, Terence would sit down, he would listen, and he would fairly, he, he was so just and so fair that he would make those changes if necessary. Um, they also encouraged me as a woman. I was left out of nothing. I was involved in every conversation. They encouraged me. Terence would take me to various parts of the BBC so that I could see where things were being made. Um, I went into the editing rooms, I was involved with Brian Hodgson, and I was given such an extraordinary time. And these two people were so fair, so generous, so caring, and we all became friends. <laughs> There's children in the audience now that I think I almost held in my arms that belonged to, to, to Terrence. And we were all very close, and so we socialized together as well. And, you know, as I say, these two men, Terence especially, when it came to the writing and the script editor, was and always will be the most remarkable, wonderful man. And he was a tremendous friend. And the passion for the show was just, for the show was just unstoppable. And as I say, to be able to stay, being a woman during that time, you hear a lot of people complaining. I was very blessed because I didn't know, because I worked for people like Terrence, that there was any difference between being a woman or being a man in this show, because I was involved. And, and of course, indeed, John Pertwee. Um, so it was, you can see now why they talk about this being such a strong family time. And it comes from those two amazing people. And Terrence did choose. Heart so strongly wanted to get children reading, and so he was writing these amazing books, which I don't read, but I do read them out loud on audio. Um, and he has done so much to start getting children to read way before Harry Potter. And I applaud him, I love him, I miss him, 
and I will always be grateful for everything he did, including my first tour of America, because I didn't know there was all these conventions going on in Australia, nobody knew anything. You know, occasionally Doctor Who might be on. It's that funny little, you know, English show. Um, and I did my first American tour with him, and we did like 13 cities in 13 days, and he also educated me on being involved in conventions, and I don't think I've ever laughed so much in my life as I did. And I'm very proud and touched to say that I saw him very close to the end of his life, and I'm really happy because all we did was laugh. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, that's a lovely portrait of him. I know that you Paul, knew him well as well. Yes, we, uh, I met him as a, um, as a young fan and then became a professional in Pooh. And can you imagine meeting one of your heroes whose name you associate with your dad reading books to you when you were ill, and then your, your mum and dad have come to associate with everything you read, and you meet them and they don't have Peter play. Um, professionalism and decency so closely aligned to each other that they seem like the same thing. I was in my 20s when I got to know Terence, and I don't ever recall hearing an off-colour anecdote from him. We gradually got to be friends as he realised that I actually was going to be a writer, and so were a number of our peers. And the way he encouraged us and offered a model to us and um, was who we wanted to be through so many years. Um, just a tremendous, tremendous man. And I'm really glad Katie brought up his decency, because that's something people haven't mentioned. But in the era that he was making television, decency is not taken for granted by any means. But yes. Absolutely. Could we focus in a bit on his writing style. Could we could we characterize it? Because it's something that seems to me to be both very distinct but also quite transparent in a way. How would you describe it? Yeah, I mean Katie sort of touched on it, these books that everyone my age read um, were so clear and concise in their prose that they were not a chore to read. But at the same time, when you go back and read them as an adult, you realise that they're incredibly clever books. And the early ones particularly, The Autumn Invasion, Day of the Daleks, you go back now and there's incredibly descriptive prose that stays with you. Um, and I think that was a real talent, and that's something that I think an awful lot of us who went into the Doctor Who publishing sort of regime that happened through both Virgin Books and then subsequently through the BBC, you're constantly trying to go, right, how can I get it as easy to read as a Terence Dix novel and get all this wonderful description? They burn it into our minds, yeah, aren't they? Those favourite phrases of his that he used. Because it's not just ease. They, uh, although Mike's absolutely right, it's simplicity, it's directness. It's also got an emotional oomph that's really hard to duplicate. Um, we were talking earlier about the word sprightly, in sprightly yellow roadster to describe Bessie, the doctor's car. Sprightly says old, because it's an old car, but it also says youthful and energetic, because it's got much more to it than it seems. So it's packed tons into one word choice. He does that all the time. 
They're rich, aren't they? Those those word choices, Emma. There are, there are you know there are phrases that in, in a way you know over the years we've probably kind of uh, teased him possibly or te teased about uh, about that kind of thing. The wheezing and groaning, which I, I think every time I go and fly to stairs, I think of that. Um, <laughs> but, but there are others that stick in my mind, like his way of describing certain things as a parody of the human form, or there are those moments when he invokes the idea of the mass. Uh, are, and they are strong, they linger with you. What impression do they make on you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've written a lot of five doctors, which has sort of, it, 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 it's got a, a, a full house and his um, most famous descriptions of um, you know, his favorite things. You know, it's got the young bold face, the pleasant open face. You know, his, and uh, as, as a nine-year-old, when I first uh, encountered the five doctors, it was so wonderful because, of course, uh, in those days, um, there wasn't, uh, as, as, as you all know, and there, but a lot of most buildings had video recorders and the shows weren't completed anyway. There were very few videos that were available, prohibitively expensive. And um, it, he took you, he held your hand, Terence Dix in particular, sort of held your hand and took you on a journey through meeting all these otherwise, you know, unfamiliar figures like the first doctor and the second doctor, and he made them all feel like old friends, and that uh, he was your your conduit, your guide, and, um, and of course, you know, he legendarily coined the phrase never cruel or cowardly to describe the doctor. And um, I think, I mean, I um, never met Terence, uh, although I've obviously watched a lot of interviews with him on DVD extras and things, but I never actually met him. But um, I cried when he died, and I think I've only cried at three celebrity deaths one was Elizabeth Sladen, one was Terry Pratchett, and one was Terence. And, um, and I think, like Terry Pratchett, he had this, um, this uh, it's very reassuring, you know, that people used to call him Uncle Terence, people who knew him. And, uh, and it was like having a relative who was guiding you through strange and unfamiliar and often very scary world. But this narrator was so warm and so trustworthy that um, you always felt really safe, even whilst embarking on, you know, what could be quite scary adventures to an eight or nine year old. Are you going to read a bit for us? We also might say, read some of our uh, our favourite moments. I'm just going to say that what? that was kind of like working with him. Yeah. You know, he would hold your hand terrifying things. And that's something I think we don't often think about. In a lot of his stories, he was actually saying something that was very important about what was going on in our world at the time. And both he and Barry were very strongly involved in that. And that meant a lot to someone like me back then, who was already thinking about plastics, and hence I'm not touching those bottles. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, there were all those things. And so between the two of them, you know, uh, there were lots of things in those things that he wrote that went a lot deeper than just a story. I just need to say that. Sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> Shall we hear a bit of his French style, though? Why don't we, we've all said we would do this. Why don't we, why don't we go to the middle of the five minutes? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The doctor was leaning against a ruined wall, his face twisted with pain. Tegan ran up to him. Doctor, what is it? He stared at her, or rather, through her. Fading, he whispered, all fading. What's fading? Great chunks of my past, detaching themselves like melting icebergs. What's happening to him, whispered Tegan. What are we going to do? Search me. He doesn't seem to be ill exactly. 
It's more like some kind of psychic attack. I am being diminished, said the doctor suddenly, whittled away, piece by piece. His voice was faint but calm, as if making some interesting scientific observation. A man is the sum of his memories, you know, and a time lord, even more so. He struggled to sit up, and Tegan supported him. Doctor, what can we do to help you? Get me into the TARDIS. I have to find, to find. Between them, Tegan and Turlow got the doctor to his feet. Find what? Asked Turlow. My other selves. Terence, I think, was was sort of the embodiment of Doctor Who, wasn't he? He was the custodian of the memory of this program, Mike. Yeah, I mean, it's something that was touched on earlier. I mean, I'm sort of about the same age as the show, give or take a few years. And once it had been out on a Saturday night, that was it. You couldn't relive it. So I grew up watching John's Doctor, uh, and I knew of the first two, uh, but it's the Terence Dicks books, and Brian Hales and, and Malcolm Hulk and, and all the writers that he encouraged into the Target writing program, that was my DVD. Um, this book was my DVD extra, you know, this is how you learned how television was made, and um, the current issue of Doctor Who magazine that's out, um, I think it's Steve Lyons touches on this book, and he said, it demystified television to such a point that people of my age thought, I can do that. And I think there's a huge number of people working in the television and film industry today that are only in it because of this book. Um, well, you're nodding at that. Well, I'm nodding at this. This is my copy, which is still covered in tip annotations. And um, it's... Uh, both editions contain a guide from plot to novelization of all the different stages. And that was, as Mike says, the first time that a lot of us had seen how the sausage was made. And here it is. Um, it's a tremendous piece of work. And uh, just opening up the bonnet and giving us the toolkit. So what did you learn from, from that book then? Well, um, all my first attempts at scripts had the 1970s annotation straight out of this. Begin Talisini at the top of them. And uh, it's, um, I, I think he's very good at getting to the point. And I think the, the piece you read out just shows that. And uh, the, um, in here, we've got the crystallization. There is no other, this is unique, there's no other making of book that went on to have dialogue featured in the show itself via the new adventures, via the, the books. Um, how many making ofs come to define the show that they, they are from? Um, uh, this is the... Uh, he is, this is um, the Doctor trying to reassure his audience that Tom Baker is the Doctor like all the previous ones were, because Tom is relatively new when this comes out. He is still impulsive, idealistic, ready to risk his life for a worthy cause. He still hates tyranny and oppression and anything that is anti-life. He never gives in and he never gives up. 
However overwhelming the odds against him, the doctor believes in good and fights evil. Though often caught up in violent situations, he is a man of peace. He is never cruel or cowardly. In fact, to put it simply, the Doctor is a hero. These days, there aren't so many of them around. These days, in 1970. Yeah, it's amazing. That, that description of the character, as Paul has said, is fantastically influential. It was one that you know, all writers on the show of a certain age would have read, and then obviously feeds into, gets onto the screen, as he pointed out. Was that, you know, thinking about Katie, the way that he saw this character who he spent so much of his of his life with, what do you think his attitude to that that character was? I mean, that is absolutely is, you know, um, he, he encouraged John to to allow or you know, because I think John, as I think all of the doctors have brought so many beautiful levels. I mean, we know it's one character, but each actor has brought something extremely special, but it doesn't go outside. It's a bit like Shakespeare gives us guidelines how to perform. I think Terence Dix has given every actor who has played Doctor Who all they needed to play that character. Um, and, and you only pepper it differently by the different assistants or, you know, people, companions. I, I never know the right word anymore. The different companions that you put with it. Um, but there is, those things belong to me, to every doctor. And if that ever changes, I think we're in real trouble. Because I think that is absolutely how you have to take, whatever else you add to that is fine. But that has to be the basis of Terence has been our Shakespeare, if you like. He has given us, or given all future Doctor Who's and all past Doctor Who's, that key to playing the character. I mean, I know that he wasn't on the earlier Doctor Who's, but there, you can see how strongly that's affected from, certainly from, from John's day, um, and to certain extent Pat Trout's day, but certainly from John's, it, it really took off, you know. He cared so deeply about this show, and so deeply about the character and um, justice and all the things that went with it, but in a very calm way. You know, he wasn't one of these egotistical kind of script editor. He was just there and loving every second of what he did. He always said that he loved a script crisis. So do you remember him kind of coming down onto the shop floor, as it were, and oh, fixing no, a problem? They spent more time down on the shop floor than they did up there. Um, and, and I was also very useful there, too. Um, so, you know, Terence would do the discussion, I'd do the soothing, <laughs> Barry would do the, right, that's the way we're going to go. But once again, it was done because... He, you know, John, once again, cared so deeply about playing this character. And Roger, you know, we had Roger there too, who also would get some issues here and there. And then I, even I, would say, I'm sorry, I'm not saying groovy. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I might say it in rehearsals or outside, but, you know, there was one where I said to, 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 to Terence, I said, I can't say, oh, wow, far out, what a groovy. I'm not going to do it. That's writing for Katie. That's not writing for Joe, and I am not Joe. 
you know, let us not get confused. And of course, but he was, he loved being down there and he loved, he loved having those discussions, but he liked winning better. You know, he, you could see the pipe would come out and would be immediately lit when we had an answer to the problem that usually came very patiently from Terence. He was, a, you know, quite extremely on that level. The only thing I will say is thanks, Terence, for all the books where I have played so many men. I cannot begin to tell you. I leave the studio and I, I really could be Kenneth Manning. You know, my voice. And, and what, one of them I was reading and this guy said to me, he said, oh, he said, that Welsh miner sounded a bit like the other. I said, I've just played 12 soldiers and 14 miners, and you have a problem with that? <laughs> you know, but no, he did. He loved those floor types. He really did. Emma, what's your sense of his, his qualities as a script editor and somebody who understands the nuts and bolts of how to put a story and a narrative together? I mean, I always got the sense of him as being sort of the ultimate professional. I think he was very self-deprecating about his work. Um, uh, and obviously, I, I completely understand that was a sort of a public persona, but um, he was, I always get the sense of him as being somebody very unpretentious, somebody who was just let's get on with it, he sort of presented himself as this sort of journeyman, it's just a job, and of course, you know, obviously he knew that he was involved with something that um, people care very passionately about, and, um, you know, I think he would very, I think, consciously put himself down going, oh, I'm just trying to sort out the problems and get things done, but I mean, if it wasn't for people like him, and he is, you know, the, sort of the first amongst them really sort of struggling so many years of the show, even the years before he started, thanks to the Target books, that, you know, if it wasn't for people like him, we, we wouldn't have this, this wonderful show. And the Target books give him a, an interesting position, don't they, Paul? Because not only does he work as script editor on the show, but in a way he becomes the kind of backseat script editor of the entire history of Doctor Who. Well, yes. I mean, this is the man who basically wrote the third draft of every Doctor Who story from late Troughton to the first Tom Baker, um, who also got to keep on script editing the rest of Doctor Who as well. In that... His novelizations typically fix at least a dozen tiny plot points, sometimes much bigger issues in the stories they cover, invisibly. So quite much, my experience as a young fan was often that I would be slightly disappointed with the TV versions, having finally seen them, having had the novelizations in my head, which are plotted better often. Also, I mean, my also, just following on from that, he gives such backstory to minor characters that all of his books open with a character that he gives you far more to think about than you ever saw from the, the 30 or 40 seconds that the TV story allowed you. So like Paul, occasionally when you finally got to see that long-lost DVD of something that you've read as a Terrence Sticks novelization, you went, oh, it isn't as good as the book. <laughs> He was particularly good as well at characterising those figures who we tend to meet at the beginning of a Doctor Who story, who then perish in order to be able to demonstrate to us something about the awfulness of the world that we're about to enter. Those people who are just, I suppose, the guys in red shirts in Star Trek, there's a whole world attached to those figures. But he could occasionally do that in a single line. 
I should say it's also not just about plots. The opening of the Web of Fear, where um, the original is quite anti-Semitic. Um, Julia Silverstein, who in the TV version is grasping and miserly, Terence gives him a well, he changes the dialogue, he makes it clear that he and Travers, who wants the Yeti back from him, are friends. He makes it clear that Travers' demands are ridiculous. Um, he humanizes him, he drains it of anti-Semitism. And I don't think he's given enough credit for things like oh, that. Oh, interesting. And he also fixes things that he considers to be naff or vulgar to our... Remember, in, the, in, the, in his novelization of Kinder, he changes the, the, the acronym SR Security because he was convinced that uh, people would think it was a kind of toothpaste and it wasn't like science fiction enough. Um, let's talk about what he gave to Doctor Who because we talked about his uh, about the fiction and, and the relationship of the, the novelizations to uh, to the scripts that, that he wrote. But you know, let's talk about that moment that he arrives on Doctor Who. Right at the end of the 60s, Doctor Who is in a pretty chaotic state at that moment. It's not, it's being, it's, it's producers are in a, a state of disarray, scripts are falling down all over the place. I mean, what, what sense do you have of what he did for that program in a, at a moment when it was rather wobbly? Can I yeah. say something? Absolutely. Because we had this conversation, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we had lots of time sitting around in the um, in the canteen and things like that. You can say come into rehearsals a lot, not just on producers day. And um, one of the things when you know when uh, they took over, they did the first year. You know, um, but what they were determined to do, um, and they talked about it a lot. And Terence brought this up was to have real army and real navy rather than you know sort of. Um, a safari suit and a paper badge, you know, so that immediately that gave a huge strength to this show. And very nice for me, real army, real navy, that was fun, um, even though I'm a pacifist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that did, if you think how much reality that brought to the show, which was something that Terence was very, very keen on too, was to, and the barriers, I can't talk about one without the other really, because they really do go together, but, you know, Terrence would sit down and he said, no, we, you, that really, we really, really, really have to, you know, make sure that this becomes more truth. Bringing in the master, you know, was inspirational to actually bring in that character and the casting of it too. Um, so one of the things that he felt was really important, and also the reason, say, that they talked about using me as opposed to having a very clever scientist or somebody, was they wanted to bring in that other aspect. So children at home, we never lost them. There was always somebody to say, oh, but I don't, hang on, I don't know what that quite means. Otherwise, everybody knows too much, but they're not telling the audience. And that, you know, it's not right. Um, because he was very keen to make sure that happened. So that was another reason they wanted Joe. And they also wanted the character that he said, and he told me this, he said, we wanted a character we could actually watch grow up rather than just watch her be on a plateau of one type of, you know, that's the girl, that's what she's doing, rah, rah, rah. Um, and also something for the young people to identify with. But I think the major thing was to start giving the program that solid body of not just be sci-fi fantasy, but have some real, and bringing it down to earth was a very good idea too. 
Because one of the things Darren said, I remember we had this discussion, and he said, well, you don't expect to see things in a shopping centre. The moment you go to another planet, you know you may see something. So this might just give it a whole new twist. But it might not really, it might not have been there to revise in this way had he not come in at the end of the 60s. Right at the end of Patrick Trowman, as soon as Terence arrives, he rewrites Brian Hales's um, Seeds of Death. Um, he's got Malcolm Hawke right there, close friend of his, landlord of his. So Malcolm Hawke effectively becomes a staff writer and writes 30 weeks of the next year of Doctor Who in one way or another. He finds Robert Holmes straight away in the slush pile and commissions him twice, bang bang. These are all such professional moves at a time when the show is a mess. And uh, basically, he sees that nobody else is going to be in charge, so he might as well be. Charlotte was basically the showrunner at that point, and if one can regard him and Barry as a unit, I, I he was going to leave, and then Barry Letts came along, and Terence immediately saw, oh, grown-up has arrived. And, uh, I was amazed when I sort of found out years later, as a, as a sort of mature fan, that um, apparently the War Games wasn't that well received at the time, because um, I, I know Terence didn't write the novelisation, did he? That was Malcolm Hulk, but obviously it was his watch, it was the direction that the war games took things in, all the decisions that were made leading on to the Pertwee era. I mean, these are, you know, if you've not said though, the, 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 the war games um, have started something which continued in the Pertwee era, which is one of the biggest metamorphoses the show has ever been through. It was it was quite extraordinary, and and it was brilliant, and um, it was all um, spearheaded by Terence Dix. <laughs> The War Games is a revolutionary story, I think, Mike, because in a way, you know, we, we often talk about the, 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 the political complexion of the Purdue years, but really that definitely does begin with the, with the War Games, because of all the things that Terence and Malvin Hulk are, are tuning into, it's like, oh, what a lovely war meets a kind of conspiracy theory about the military-industrial complex, and it's kind of psychedelic, too. It's, it's an extraordinary... Because you do have what the BBC did incredibly well, which is period drama, and then it starts to throw in these little science fiction elements that just build and build and build. So, yeah, it's a very modern bit of storytelling at a time when the show is quite simplistic in a way. And I think that's because Terence and Barry, as, as everyone's been saying, do think of them as a unit understood what modern television needed to be and what they needed to bring to the programme. And whilst you see hints of that in The War Games and Spearhead from Space, it's the following years when all the CSO starts coming in and colour and the use of television in a way that hasn't been done up to that point. It's gone from being almost a theatrical production that's being filmed to something that is meant for television. I just can say the other thing too, which I thought, you know, was really, really important that they did, was they fought really hard to get that budget to work really hard on special effects. And when you listen to some of the, and I was fortunate enough to have been involved in so many of the commentaries on the, on the, um, I can't remember the right words. Um, technology and me are just so fun. They're obsolete now, anyway. <laughs> they are. That's the thing. Anyway, um, that listening to them, you know, I was also learning a lot about, you know, how much that made a difference and how, you know, how we were. The great thing about the BBC then was being able to go to the sports department 
right, and actually borrow a freeze-frame machine. Everybody was working so strongly together. And Barry said, you know, this is, this, we are going so forward now. We've got, you know, we, we know that computers are the size of this room. It's boss and things like that. But, you know, you can see what they were doing. I mean, I was used as a, um, as a, a guinea pig for color separation overlay. Sorry, I'm a bit old fashioned. Is it blue screen now or green screen? Okay. We all know. We all know what we, we know. still think of it as color separation overlay. Anyway, yeah. I was used for that. You know, so they used blue, they used green, they used yellow. That was good. My head disappeared. Um, but you know, it was, that was also very exciting because they were learning and they were changing all these things to give that program that lift. And it was very for hammering tools to get that extra two and six pence to do that work with, which he said often we ran out of money when it came to certain elements. Uh, I won't mention which ones. Right. But understanding how all those different bits of television work together and how to put that team together so that they're all doing their best, that gets driven from the top. So if you've got a scriptwriter and a producer who are effectively working, as you say, like a two-man showrunner team, and understand how everybody's bit of this program fits together, they are writing shows to the strengths of everybody, and I think it shows. We're approaching the last uh, five minutes or so of our conversation. I think we should return, in a way, to the nature of the man. Um, and his humility as well. I think there's, I'm not going to read from this, but here's a good example of this. Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, a script that had, you know, a pretty kind of uh, bumpy ride to the screen, um, so much so that, that uh, Terence's name was removed from it because it was written, rewritten so, so aggressively by his great friend Robert Holmes. Um, and we all know the story, don't we? Stick some bland pseudonym on it, he said. And, and indeed, the story went out under the name of Robin Bland, which I think, in a way, became became part of Terence's email address, didn't it? But also, in his humility, that he you know he returns to this story not once but twice, and 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 revisits it often. And this is kind of you know some writers, and there have been a few in the history of Doctor Who of. Uh, uh, have kind of turned on their heels after that kind of experience, but but not him. Well, for one thing, he monopolizes it as it is on the screen, rather than going back to what it was. But can you imagine what an experience that was for him? He'd found Rob Robert Holmes in the slush pile, and suddenly Robert Holmes is rewriting him. He created a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and for Terence, that's that you would get the feeling that the affront was just momentary. But he's gone going back to laughing and liking his friend very, very swiftly. Because the revisions he made are incredibly subtle. He, for instance, he clearly doesn't like the idea that some of those faces on that mind-bending screen in the Reign of Morbius are previous incarnations of the Doctor. So he gently removes that. But he doesn't take out all of these other liberties that were taken with his script, Emma. Yes, and it's funny that the sort of... Um that that thing which Terence didn't like, the the previous incarnation of the Doctor, is something which which you know people who followed on have also quietly dropped. <laughs> that sort of you know that is um um that has been retconned in various ways. But um, I think he's inspirational as a TV writer because actually um, pretentiousness, ego, and auteurism are actually not necessarily helpful qualities in, in making good TV because it is such a collaborative 
um, environment. And I think, of, you know, when, when I think of, as you say, you know, the argument with Robert Holmes, who he made, the, um, the creation of Robin Bland, clearly a huge argument. And then all is forgiven and forgotten. And I think it's, um, I think it shows what a great, a humble man he was. And it's something we can, we can kind of all learn from to me because you do have arguments. It's very stressful. Um, but I think, the, the idea that you can disagree and then forgive and be friends again is, is, is what the Doctor would do. Let's talk a bit about his time after Doctor because he was very much part of the culture of events like this. Well, I'm very pleased to say that there are members of his family in this room as we speak. It's his sons, two of his sons sitting on the, on the front row. And he was very much involved in, in, in this kind of event. I'm guessing that, that some of you would have, his, the experiences that you remember him for are, are rather at occasions like this, rather than under the lights of television centre, perhaps, for. Well, um, I think um, one should say that his career extended enormously in children's literature, way beyond Doctor Who, and kept going and influenced an awful lot of people in an awful lot of different ways from there. But yes, in convention situations, um, uh, he was in the bar, he was talking to young writers, he was uh, offering us drip, drips of wisdom. I remember seeing him at the BSFA open meeting, and because they asked about crime writing and about wider science fiction, he talked about how um, the people he'd met in science fiction, Harlan Ellison, Ursula Le Guin, he talked about his love for Raymond Chandler, about his love for sea novels, his um, Patrick O'Brien and the Hornblower books and uh, historical novels like that. Um, so many dimensions to him. Um, and um, we got to know him in drips and drabs because one had to go looking for it. He would not force it upon one. It's such an enormous career. There's no chance that he's even scratched the surface of it, really. Mounties books, the dog books, the crossroads, Moonbase 3, the classic serials, I mean, it's just endless, isn't it? But what will we, what does he mean to you personally? And I think if we can, if we can go along the line here, then that can take us to the end of our event. Mike? Well, there is a, there's a little chapter in this book about the special effects department, and he does actually say, if you would like to learn more, look at the book, the technique, the technique of Special Effects in Television, written by Bernard Wilkie, who is the BBC's Senior Visual Effects Designer. It is published by Focal Press and costs £3.50, but you might also be able to find it in your public library. And having read that, I did go and find it in my public library. I did get it ordered for me for Christmas. And that is why I'm in the career I'm in. So he is responsible for the career. So I have to give him all the Emma, you next, and we can end with Katie. Well, um, as, as I was saying, this is the person that could take you as the hand, by the hand as you sort of come to the shelves of Wrexham Public Library and um, just take you into all these different worlds. And I think I think definitely influenced um, me becoming a writer and particularly the sorts of things that I would write. You know, he just showed the multiple possibilities that were out there. My friend, my great inspiration, my mentor, I owe him everything, I owe him my career, he's why I'm here. You get the last word, I think. My father used to write a chronicle.
last word. Um, and Terence Sticks was very good too, believe me, you had to. I found that Terence was inspirational, he was supportive, he loved to share all his ideas and his thoughts. He, what was also lovely about him is that he really liked and understood actors. So it wasn't just, you know, a novel writer or a script, but he really did. And he was one of the most generous people to actually be involved with, both emotionally, everywhere, and supportive. Um, and as a young actress, I don't think that I would have had the strength and the understanding uh, of so many areas of television which fascinate me. I was never just interested in acting. I wanted to be everywhere. And he took my hand and he took me around those studios and he made sure that I was always going to see and always be welcome in every area of those studios. Um, but most of all, I loved, I absolutely adored his friendship and the joy and the humour that he brought into my life, and I would always be grateful could, could we get the caption of him back on the screen, please? Can we get the picture? There he is. So I want to thank, as we come to the end of this, I want to thank Mike Tucker, I want to thank Katie Manning, Paul Connell, and Emma Reeves, but most of all, I think all of the others in this room want to thank Terence Dix.